Well, if you could turn in your Bibles, please, uh, to First Peter chapter 1 for uh, our scripture reading. First Peter 1, uh, page number 1854 in the Pew Bible. We're going to read from verse 3 down to uh, verse 9. Now, this is the word of the living God. Remember, it's authoritative, it's inerrant, it's infallible. It is God's word to us. 1 Peter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honour and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Amen. Friends, let's pray. Lord, we come now to the expounding of your precious word. We long to drink from the fountain of your supply. Lord, we readily confess that like the people of old, we are so prone to hew out cisterns of our own, only to be confronted by the reality of how quickly they run dry and leave us empty. And so in Jesus' name, we pray that as we turn to the Bible now, that you would help us to gather up our powers of concentration, to center them upon what is being proclaimed. May uh, may we not be distracted by the flesh, by worldly concerns. May Satan not get in and steal the seed of your word immediately that it is sown. We pray, dear God, that you would enable us to think and to hear and to understand and to trust and to be given the grace to apply your word to our lives. We confess freely our entire dependence upon you, the living God. So help us, we pray, in Jesus' blessed name. Amen. Amen. Galatians, 5, 20, uh, Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, but the fruit... Of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. Now, last week, we began this little topical series on the fruit of the Spirit. And uh, we looked at love, making the point that love is the fountain out of which all the other fruit flows. Now, just as biblical love 
is vastly different from the world's love, so biblical joy is different from the world's joy. Now, to see this, it will be helpful at the outset to understand the distinction between happiness and joy. Happiness, our English word happiness, is rooted in the Latin hap, which is chance. And so we tend to think of happiness along the lines which are invariably linked with health, with success, with uh, possessions. Happiness is regarded largely as a kind of spontaneous response to temporary pleasures. In other words, beloved, if things are going well, somehow inside it makes us feel that all is well with the world and we think we are okay. Now, by contrast, biblical joy is not determined by a sense of well-being because joy may be experienced when things, biblical joy may be experienced when things are not going well. Uh, For example, some folks folks this morning uh, may be facing illness. Uh, Some may be facing the uncertainty of life without the job, which marked their lives by security up to this point. Some folks, uh, maybe if not within the uh, congregation here, but other folks will be gathering this morning uh, in other places dealing with sudden bereavement. And there will be numerous happenstances contributing to difficult circumstances. Now, it would be odd to say the least if someone, for example, who had just suffered a sudden bereavement came into you know, the place all bubbly and smiling and laughing and joking. I think we'd have cause to be concerned if that were the case. But if they came in, people who are suffering these circumstances, negative circumstances, if they came in exhibiting what we would call biblical joy, it would be markedly different. Now, what do you mean about it being markedly different? Well, if happiness depends upon what happens. Biblical joy is distinguishable from that and as much as it shapes our attitude. So the Bible shapes our attitude to our, to our circumstances and our surroundings. That's why we read from 1 Peter chapter 1 because it helps us to ground our topic in um, Peter's statement that was found in verse 8. Whom having not seen, referring to the Lord Jesus Christ, of course. Whom having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Now the progression there is so important. You don't see him. So it's not about perception in that way. But you believe in him. And as you believe in him, you rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible. So this joy, and let's make sure we understand this at the beginning. This joy, Christian joy, biblical joy, 
is the natural or, if you like, the supernatural response to believing this glorious gospel that we have the privilege of proclaiming and believing. Yes, you may have suffered horrible loss. Yes, may have received devastating news. Yes, plans may have fallen through. You know, what seemed like a bright future yesterday when you were looking ahead, for some reason this morning when you got up, it has suddenly become very, very dark. So where does biblical joy come from in the light of that, in the light of those circumstances? Well, friends, it comes by applying that supernatural, supernatural response of believing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Horatio Spafford nailed it in the words of his hymn when he was talking about the sorrows like sea billows rolling following the death of his wife and daughters. The sorrows like sea billows roll, but whatever his lot, he realized that the Lord had taught him to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. He was able to work through the dark circumstances biblically. And what I'm saying, friends, is that the joy of the Christian is unique because at the heart of it is the joy of salvation. And that's what Spafford goes on to talk about in his hymn. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but all of it, but the whole is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. And what's his response? It's joy. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Now, that's not simply the sense of well-being that we have because we feel that our our behavior is in line with our profession of faith. Now, friends, it is far deeper and a far more significant joy. It's the joy that is grounded in the fact that we know, those of us who are believers, we know we're assured of all that God has done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ to set us free from our sins, from the devil, from death. We realize that regardless of our circumstances, that God is sovereign and that he is ultimately in control. Our world, as we know, is a fallen world. It's broken. It's desperately, terminally ill. And I would argue, friends, that in Western society, man is at a point in history where he is unhappy as he has probably ever been. So where, then, is this joy to be found? Well, the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ is able to say that there is only one cure for man's ills. There's only one cure for our nation's ills. That when my conscience accuses me, there is only one thing that I know that can give me rest and peace and ultimate joy. And what is that? It is to know the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as Saviour, to know that He has forgiven me. 
It is to believe and to know that because he loved me and because he died for me, I am free from accusation. And that when my conscience accuses me, when I'm aware of my weakness and my frailty, when I'm aware of my failure, when I'm aware of my lack of power to live as God intends for me to live as a Christian, what happens? Well, I am driven again and again and again back to that rock that is higher than I, back to the rock of the Lord Jesus Christ, back to the rock of my salvation. And that is the distinguishing feature of the joy that is produced in us. What the hymn writer referred to in our opening hymn, lasting solid joys and lasting treasure, none, none but Sion's children know. Now, to tease out what we mean by these solid joys and how they come to be ours, uh, let's turn to a catechism. And that's why in the back of your notice sheet, I know some of you get it on your your, uh, phones and things, but uh, hopefully you've read it. Okay, so... Catechism referred to as the Heidelberg Catechism. Give you a wee bit of information about it there on your notice sheet. Um, obviously called the Heidelberg Catechism because of where it originates. Catechism is a means of, of teaching, a method of teaching by question and answer. And you see there the first question. What is your only comfort in life and death? And the answer... Follow it along with me. The answer to what is your only comfort in life and death? That I'm not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Saviour, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his priceless blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. Now, that's some answer, isn't it? You know, I don't know what your answer would have been if we just opposed the question, left the space blank and said, now you you fill in the blank. I, I don't know what your answer would have been, but that's the answer that the catechism provides. Well, what then of question two? What do you need to know in order to live and die in the joy of this comfort. So there comes joy. Okay. What do you need to know in order to live and die in the joy of this comfort? Now notice the question is not how do you need to feel if you're going to be able to handle this. The question is what do you need to know? What do I need to know? And then he gives the answer, and the answer is threefold. First, how great my sins and misery are. 
Second, how I am delivered from all my sins and misery. And thirdly, how I am to be thankful to God for such deliverance. So three things. And what's the first thing that I need to know? What's the first thing that you need to know? How great are my sins and my misery? In other words, I need to know my guilt. Now, guilt is not PC today. Because we're not supposed to make people feel guilty. But there will never be, friends, there will never be awareness of the immensity of grace and the gratitude that we owe without understanding the reality of our guilt. We have it classically put in the hymn by John Newton, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. We sing it routinely, perhaps without really giving a thought of what John Newton was on about. He was once blind, but now sees. He was once deaf to God's voice. He was once guilty before a holy and a righteous God. And it was grace that allowed him to see that. You see, friends, sin, according to the Bible, is first of all a condition. It's a state of our souls. Individual sins like envy, lust, pride, arrogance, etc., etc., all of those sins are symptoms of our condition as part of a fallen race. It's a condition that is a shared condition. Shared because Romans 3 tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So it's not only shared, but it's also terminal. The wages of sin is death. Now, whether a man or a woman feels that to be the case or not, it's not an objective condition. The Bible says it's true of all of us by nature. Okay, it's an objective, it's not a matter of feelings. Whether I feel that to be the case or not, it's an objective position. We are in this position by nature, by virtue of being sons and daughters of Adam. And so part of the misery of being lost is um, not knowing that we're lost. So when someone sits and listens, for example, uh, to, to this first point on, on guilt, how great are my sins and how great is my guilt. That the, the temptation is to, is to say, well, this must be referring to somebody else because it can't be me and I'm a good person. I'm a decent person. But if the lights ever go on and the Spirit of God convicts you of your sin and you find yourself singing for the first time, with understanding with the rest of the congregation. Thou savest those that call on thee. You realize that Jesus is your saviour. As we were singing in our what, fourth hymn, I never wept for thee till grace thee sightless eyes received. You know, God moves and he convicts and he convinces of sin by the spirit of God. And you realize that I was, was blind, oblivious 
to the fact that I was up to my eyes in sinking sand. Once the light goes on and you admit that I was absolutely lost, my condition before God was a miserable condition. It was a lost condition. And somehow, if you think back, if you were a Christian, to those unsaved days, you anesthetized yourself, didn't you, against it? You had managed through temporary pleasures and evidences of your own success and progress to make sure that you didn't have to face the reality of the broken cisterns of this world. You see, the answer to our sin and our misery is not trying to be what we can't. The answer to our guilt and to our misery is grace. And that's the second point, isn't it? How am I delivered from this sin and misery? We're delivered by grace. Friends, it's all of grace. Grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. You see, at one time, as Paul writes to the Ephesians, we were dead in trespasses and sins, and we walked, you know, according to the course of this world. And you follow Paul's argument through in Ephesians chapter 2, and he says in verses 4 and 5, but God. That's the difference, isn't it? We once walked this way. What makes a difference but God? But God who is rich in grace because of his great love. Wherewith he loved us. Even when we were dead in trespasses and sins. Made us alive together with Christ. So friends here's the wonder of it. Here's the majesty of it. Here's the marvel of it. Here's the. The the miracle of it. Here's the glory of it. That by God's sovereign grace. Those who are dead in trespasses and sins. And need spiritual resurrection. Find it in Jesus Christ. By nature I'm enslaved. And I need liberation. And it's the Lord Jesus Christ who sets us free. By nature I am condemned. Under God's just wrath, and I'm need of God's mercy. And God, who is rich in mercy, by his grace, grants it. You see, friends, without an awareness of our sin and misery, a number of things inevitably follow. For example, if you just think about it within the terms of the public proclamation from a pulpit like this. If the preacher is embarrassed by the notion of sin and guilt and misery and judgment and hell, if the preacher is so concerned to make sure that he doesn't offend, you know, the congregation, doesn't offend against the perceptions and consciences of the congregation, especially if he's preaching to a congregation that has been set the question, how can I deal with and find comfort and joy in the face of life and death? And the answer to the question that the congregation are thinking is, well, you know, if there is a God, as you say, preacher, and he's a good God, And a merciful God, as you proclaim, 
then I believe that he will reward a nice person like me. And I believe he'll reward people that do their best. And since, you know, we're a relatively good bunch of people, and we're doing our best, we're not perfect, but we're doing our best, then this is our confidence, this is our trust, that God will welcome us into his holy presence because we're a nice bunch of people. Now, the preacher, if he's going to be bold enough to say, well, here, hold on a minute, you're barking up the wrong tree. Hold on a minute, you can't go there. You can't go down the road of, God will accept me because I'm good, because the Bible doesn't let you go there. Then the self-righteous person in the congregation will say, well, regardless of what you're saying, preacher, this could not possibly apply to me. This must apply to somebody outside because I can't see myself. You know, as a wicked person, as an ungodly person. That's why I'm here this morning. I like to worship. And when that happens, once guilt and sin and misery are removed from the equation, there's no longer any need for a savior. Do you see what I mean? All you need now is Jesus as a a supplement. Maybe a little addendum to your life. You don't need a saviour, you know, all, all you need is an example. And so Jesus is the example to tell us how, how to live. And that's a general perception or understanding uh, of much of Christianity. That Jesus has come to supplement our already good and decent lives. He's come to give us an example to follow. And that's how you're thinking. You must bring that thinking before the scrutiny of the Bible and see whether that thinking actually fits what the Bible says. And friends, when you realize that when the penny actually drops, that it's, re- that it's the reality of your sin and your misery and your guilt that puts you at odds with God then that gives way to the wonder of God's grace. That he should love us so much that he should send his son Jesus Christ to die for us. And once you get to that point, well, we're starting to be on the right track again. The only answer to guilt is grace. The only right response to grace is gratitude. And that was the third point in the catechism. And gratitude follows grace So joy ultimately follows gratitude. And that's what the Bible says. The little book of Philippians, four chapters full of joy. The Psalms are so full of joy. Come let us sing of the joy of the Lord, Psalm 95. Psalm 16, in your presence there is fullness of joy. How many joyful people do you know? Here's the harder question. Am I one of them? Because there are definitely hindrances to true joy. What are the hindrances? Okay, here are three. Very briefly, here are three. And with this, we'll begin to wrap up. Three hindrances to real joy. Number one, foolishness. Foolishness is a hindrance to true joy. The foolishness that Paul addresses in Romans chapter 1 where he says that God has revealed himself both in conscience and in creation. 
But man in his foolishness has turned his back on God and his heart has become darkened and he embraces all kinds of things that actually unravel what God intends for man to be. As C.S. Lewis said in his Weight of Glory, Lewis observed this kind of foolishness. He says, this is what, this is what it amounts to. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink, sex, and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. We're like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he can't imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday by the ocean. We are far too easily pleased. If you're searching for solid joy, you'll never find it down the dead-end streets and broken cisterns of this world. They are self-depleting. You know, beloved, there is no answer down those dead-end streets or those broken cisterns. You have to go... um, Well, you end up being what Lewis describes here, you know, people that are far too easily pleased with the trinkets of this world that don't satisfy. You know, the only answer to the broken cisterns, the only answer to the empty wells, the only answer to the dead-end streets is to be found in the Lord Jesus Christ and his foolishness to turn your back on that and miss out on that joy. Secondly, true deep-seated joy is hindered by forgetfulness. Psalm 103, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all its benefits. Forget not all its benefits. Jeremiah, speaking to the people of his day, said, have you folks forgotten what God did? Have you people forgotten that he brought you out of Egypt? Have you forgotten that he has the answer to the deepest longings of your heart? Have you forgotten that? Have you forgotten that he has given you his commandments? You know, one of the great depletions of joy in the life of a genuine believer is forgetfulness. Why did Jesus give us communion? So that we wouldn't forget. So that we would never forget that his son, Jesus Christ, died for us. He took our place. That our punishment was laid on him. That's grace, beloved. Hence gratitude. And hence should lead to joy. Don't forget it. Third hindrance, faint-heartedness. Grief, disappointment, holding, harping back to uh, forgiven but not forgotten sins. You know, um, well, you know how it, you see how it works both ways, don't you? We, we deplete our joy by forgetting what we should remember. We deplete our joy by remembering what we should forget. You see, the evil one, Satan, the accuser of the brethren, he wants to come and he wants to take us back through the garbage cans of sins in your past and he wants to rob you of your joy. And if you, if the answer to that is not to look out from yourself onto Christ, but rather to listen to Satan, to look within and say, yeah, that's right, you know, is this, that, and the other in the past. You end up, you know, Satan gains a victory. He gets a foothold. 
and you become, you know, depressed and sullen and withdrawn. You know, the only answer to Satan and his accusations is to look onto Jesus Christ. Look from outside yourself onto Jesus. Look onto him who has washed us and cleansed us. The truth is found in Christ. Now, if at this moment you're a Christian and you're not really conscious of joy, what are we to say? And with this we'll conclude. Does that mean no fruit? Okay, you're a Christian. You're sitting listening to this this morning. You're saying, examine my life and have no consciousness of joy. Does that mean no fruit? Does that mean being driven onto the treadmill of anxiously examining yourself? Not necessarily. Obviously, it's important to examine yourself. Not to the extent where you're driving yourself body and losing your assurance. You know, the whole point of examining yourself is to bolster your assurance, make sure you're on that solid rock. But what if you're not really conscious of joy? That brings us back to what we said last week about seasons in the soul. You know, the deadness of winter does give way to the shoots and the springs and the growth of life. You know, there is life, but there needs to be patience. Uh, And growth sometimes is slow. It's not always immediate. So we don't want to make the mistake, or we don't want to mistake the reality of deep-seated joy by constantly looking for subjective expressions of it. Now, now that's not to give in one hand to take away from the other. It's just basically to recognize that some of the godliest of saints through the history of the church have wrestled with this. You know, C.H. Spurgeon said, I have learned to be joyful in the aftermath of my illness. But I must confess, I was not joyful in the experience of my illness. He says, am I to say that, what am I to say about this, he says. He says, I am to say this, I am a growing Christian. And I am learning as I walk the Christian life. You see, Spurgeon, if you read about him, Spurgeon did have his dark days, just like William Cowper, the hymn writer, had his dark days. Cowper's final seven years were one slow slide into abject depression. You know, Newton references it when he preaches um, at his funeral. But, you know, Spurgeon went on to say, the joy of the Lord is what does the most damage to Satan's empire than anything. Satan can't handle truly joyful believers. Satan can't handle it when he tempts us to despair and tells us of the guilt within. And what do we do? Upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Satan can't handle it. And so, friends, Spurgeon said, you know, I'm with Luther, who said to his friend Melanchthon, you know, when he was facing bad news and troubles and everything else, Luther used to say, well, sing Psalm 46 and let Satan do his worst. And so that joy that um, Paul writes about to the Galatians, it's like the love we were talking about last week needs to be cultivated. 
And we cultivate it by getting into the word of God, sitting under the means of grace, encouraging one another. And um, yeah, we pray that God would work these, this fruit out in our life, that we would be well-balanced, well-rounded believers in the Lord Jesus Christ.